Well, if you were with us last Sunday morning, you know that we have begun a new theme for August. You know, our theme for the year is re dot dot dot, and we are exploring all of our uh, biblical and theological vocabulary. Uh, the words that begin with that prefix re. So for August, our word is rejoice. And we are studying together the book of Philippians. And so this morning, I will invite you to look with me at a a very powerful and beautiful page in our Bibles, and that is Philippians 2. I've entitled the message today, The Preeminence of Christ Jesus. And what we'll do today is we will do our best to lift up the Lord Jesus Um, Jesus said, if the Son of Man will be lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. And so we want to give him glory today and give him the opportunity to draw us to himself. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to look at this page in our Bibles a little more devotionally. And tonight, when we come back for our summer Bible study, we will explore this text a bit more exegetically. So this morning, more of a devotional take on Philippians 2, if you will. So let's look at this text this morning. In verse 1, the text reads, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, every page in our Bibles is holy and sacred. There are some pages that have such a profound sense of majesty, we approach them cautiously, and this would be one of those pages. So here's what we're going to do this morning. As I said, we're going to address this more devotionally. We're going to divide the text into three major sections, what God wants us to do, what Christ Jesus has done, and what God has done. So let's start with the first one, what God wants us to do. Now, I want you to notice in the first few verses of Philippians 2, you'll see the small word, if. It's used several times. Verse 1, if you have any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if any common sharing in the Spirit. What you need to know just from the perspective of, of knowing the Greek text, the New Testament's written in Greek, not in English. And this particular grammatical construction that Paul uses here is what's known as first-class condition. What that means is is the implication is you actually have these things, even though he uses the word if. He is saying, since you know that you have these things. So, since you know you have encouragement by being united with Christ, you know you have comfort from his love, you know you have fellowship in his spirit, you know you have tenderness, you know you have compassion. Paul is saying you certainly have all of these things. He says, now, because you have these things, look at verse 2. 
He says, fill up my joy. Make my joy complete. Philippians is a book filled with joy. And in this particular word, Paul is saying, I want you to fill my joy up. Well, how do you do that? They're 700 miles away from Paul. Paul's in jail in Rome. He can't have access to the Philippians. How do they fill up his joy? What does that mean? Well, he gives them some words of instruction. First of all, he says, be united. So look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. In other words, if I get out of prison and I actually get to come back to Philippi, great. I may not get to come back to Philippi. So whether I get to see you again or I don't get to see you again, here's what he says. I know that you will stand firm in the one spirit and you will strive together as one. So Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, I want you to demonstrate unity in the church. Then he says in chapter 2, make my joy full. Fill up my joy, he says. If you'll notice, verse 2, he says, be unified. He says, be like-minded. That phrase means to think the same things. Then he says, have the same love. Be one in the spirit. The Greek word is same souled. Means to, to be connected and in our spirits. And then he says, one mind again. And this time it refers to thinking one thing. And the point is, Paul is encouraging this church. This is what God wants for you, Paul says. Here's how you make my joy full. Be unified. Don't be divided as a church. And unity According to the teaching of the New Testament, it is a gift from the Spirit of God. God gives the gift of unity to the church. Then it's the church's responsibility to steward that unity and foster that unity and protect that unity and facilitate that unity. But it's actually given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you protect, facilitate, foster unity in a local church? Here's how you do it. By being selfish demanding, proud, always having to have your own way, always being at the center of every conversation, always worried about no matter what happens in the church, what's it going to do to you? That's a sure path to unity, right? Uh, No. However, I've been doing this a long time. I've seen all of those play out in the past in various places through the years. Here's what Paul says. If you want to make my joy complete, be unified. Protect your unity. How do you do it? First of all, be unselfish. Look at what he says in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. He says, or anything that leads to, the Greek word is vain glory. We don't use that word much in English anymore. Pride, if you will. Vain conceit is how the NIV translates it. So, Don't do things that are going to feed your own selfish ambition, that are going to lead to your own pridefulness. Be unselfish. Also, be humble. Look at the rest of verse 3. In humility, consider others better than you. Now, what he means by that is that phrase really is a a reference to their status. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're better people than you are per se or better Christians than you are. It just means that you consider their status 
superior to your status. You're, you're going to be willing to think about them and what their needs are and, their, and the things that they're dealing with as opposed to just your own needs. So verse 4, he says, not, not just looking out for yourself, if you will, but also paying attention to the needs of others. Now, would y'all not agree that that's sermon enough for this morning? Just don't be selfish and don't do anything out of prideful ambition and be humble. Would that not be just a good enough sermon? Now, I'm going to keep preaching, but I'm just saying that's enough right there because that's hard enough to do. I'm just telling you, it's easy to say. It sounds good to read it. It feels good to explain it. But I'm just here to tell y'all, it's really hard to do it, to just live this way. You know, uh, y'all remember when the tsunami hit Japan, we, we had um, some cross-cultural workers from our church who lived there at the time, and they were very close to where the, uh, the tragedy was. If you remember um, Fukushima, that nuclear power plant, y'all remember all this when it was destroyed or it was damaged, rather? And that was a very difficult and challenging time for everybody. But finally, when the dust settled and it came time to repair the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Do y'all know who repaired that plant? Have y'all ever read about it? They called in a group, let me get their name right, the Skilled Veterans Corps, led by a man named Mr. Yamada. And you know who they are? They're old, retired people. That's who they are. Here's what Yamada said. They said, why did y'all go into this nuclear facility and do this work? You know what he said? He said, well, I'm 72 years old, and we don't want to expose our younger workers to this radiation. We decided to take that on ourselves. In other words, humble, looking out for the interests of others, rather than putting yourself first. Does that make sense? That's just an example of that happening out in the culture. My goodness. How about in the church? You see, humility, unselfishness, it means that you... It doesn't, it doesn't mean necessarily that you don't ever think of yourself. That's not really what it means. It's, it's just that you think of others and you're ready to engage in your life in a way that gives consideration to the needs of others. Look at verse five. Here's, here's the summary. Paul says, if you, if you want me just to summarize it for you, be Christ-like. That's verse five. In your relationships with one another, just have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Just, just be, think, act like Jesus. Now, so what does that mean? How would we explain that? Well, that takes us now to verses 6, 7, and 8, and really all the way through verse 11. As I said, we'll come back tonight. This is a beautiful artistic statement. Is it a poem? Was it a hymn? Was it something Paul himself wrote? I mean, there's a good bit of debate about all of that, and we'll come back tonight and talk about all of that. I'd like for us to look at it devotionally this morning and break it down into two stanzas. First of all, what Christ Jesus has done. That's verses six through eight. So Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does that mean? How does that look? Paul says, well, let me, let me explain to you who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. So look at verse six. He has surrendered his place first. He has surrendered his place. Look at what it says. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, this, this Greek 
text is a little difficult to put into English. But basically what Paul says is, is that Christ Jesus is God. He's in his very nature. Morphe is the Greek word. He's in his very nature, his very essence. He's God. But he didn't consider his divinity something that he had to hold on to, something that he had to grasp. He didn't even consider his divinity something that he had to use to his own advantage, even though he could. But he chose not to do that. In other words, he chose to surrender that which was by rights all his. Because Christ Jesus, when we encounter him in the flesh, what we have to be mindful of is that he is God the Son. And this text is teaching us that God the Son is eternal. This is a word about the pre-existence of Christ. Now, I would say this about Americans today. Americans today, um, they have a certain general understanding of Christianity, just in general. There, there's enough Christian veneer on the surface of our society that Americans have a general understanding of it. Um, and so one of the research firms that constantly is trying to determine what Americans really believe is Lifeway. Lifeway has a, has a research arm. Well, in 2021, in December of 2021, Lifeway released a, a pretty significant amount of research into what Americans believe. Three categories of Americans, just Americans in general, Americans who are religious, and non-religious Americans. And they asked them a series of questions to try to understand what do they really know, what do they think, what do they believe. In general, just all Americans, when asked this question, do you celebrate Christmas? Over 90% of Americans said yes, we celebrate Christmas. When you ask Americans, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Over 80% of Americans, in general, said yes, we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that the person Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem in the first century? Do you see that as a fact? Just a historical fact. 72% of Americans said, yes, we believe Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Then they're asked this question. Do you believe in the pre-existence of Christ? 41% of Americans said yes. But almost 60% of Americans said, well, no, I don't believe in the pre-existence of Christ. In other words, most Americans, now I'm not talking about religious practicing Christians, I'm talking about just a typical American, are confused about the origins of Jesus. So let's just make sure that we clear this up for our church. Here's what I want to make sure you know. And I know we have a lot of young people in here this morning. So let's just make sure we know this. Your church, we are Trinitarian in our theology. Here's what that means. We believe in the eternal existence of Almighty God, and we believe God exists in eternity as three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And there is order in the Trinity, but not rank. And so we are Trinitarian, so we believe in the pre-existence of Christ. And so that squares with the teaching of the New Testament. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said in John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. A powerful statement about his divinity, his preexistence. Paul said in Colossians, in him all things were created. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he was in his very nature God but he surrendered his place. 
Then, Paul says, he emptied himself. Look at verse 7. He says, not only did he not hold on to, grasp his status, if you will. He, the Greek word is kenosis. He, he gave it all up. He, he emptied himself. The NIV puts it like this. He made himself nothing. That means that he just opened all his life up and he just allowed all of that that was rightfully his to be released and he made himself nothing. Next, he humbled himself, the text says. Notice, he took on the nature, verse 7, of a servant, he says. In verse 80, he humbled himself. Just a double statement about the humility of Jesus, emphatic about his humility. Also, he became human, the text teaches us. Notice verse 7. He made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness, verse 8. He was found in appearance as a man. Now, again, come back tonight and we will unpack that exegetically. But let's just take that in right now. That basically is a message about the incarnation of Christ. That God the Son became flesh. In other words, we don't believe that the, the, the Trinity, it, it exists in, in eternity. We don't believe that God the Son came into existence in Bethlehem. We believe in the eternal nature of the Trinity. But we do believe that in Bethlehem, something miraculous took place. All of a sudden, the Son of God now is willing to wrap himself in human flesh, and he became a human being. It's an incredible story. It distinguishes Christianity because we don't believe that human beings can become God. We believe the opposite. God has become a human being. And he now has come and lived among us. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? John 1, verse 14, the word that was God, he says, verse 14 of John 1, the word what? Became flesh and dwelt among all of us. So it's a beautiful, miraculous statement about the incarnation. So Jesus, he surrendered his place, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became human, and guess what else? He obeyed the Father. Look at verse eight, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was willing to follow God's plan and humble himself and his obedience resulted in his death and he died a sacrificial death for all of us and died on our behalf. Humility, obedience, sacrifice. So Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Niccolo Machiavelli, he's that Renaissance philosopher. He took it upon himself to try to teach particularly those of royal descent, as he said, not to finish last. So Machiavelli wrote The Prince, and The Prince was a guidebook because he said, I don't want you to finish last. And he said, here's the problem with the Western culture. He said, here's what makes you finish last, being nice. He says, so stop it. Stop being nice. If you're going to be a ruler, be unscrupulous. Do whatever you have to do. Use any means necessary. Your enemy, if you want to finish first, is nice. And he says, you know where nice came from? It came from the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, and look what happened to him. He finished last. That's his take on the life of Jesus. Died on a cross. Humiliated. He didn't lead some successful movement to overthrow the Roman Empire. And he says the source of all this niceness in our culture is Jesus. Ignore him. Wow. Well, contrary to what Machiavelli decided to do, let me show 
share with you really quickly what God has done. How did God respond to God the Son? When he gave up his position, surrendered his place, humbled himself, became obedient, became a human being. Let me show you what God has done. Look at what this text says, look at verse nine. God has exalted Christ. And I want you to notice he has lifted him to the highest place. One word in Greek, it means super exalted. He lifted him to the highest place. That's the decision God has made. And then not only that, he has ascribed him his matchless name. Look at verse nine. He has given to him a name that is above every name. So the son of God emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, became a human, obeyed God even to the point of death. And God's response was to take his name and make his name the name above every other name. And so we keep reading our Bibles and we come to the book of Revelation and we meet the exalted Christ in the book of Revelation. He's already died on the cross for our sin. He's been gloriously resurrected from the dead. He's ascended to the Father and he now has been exalted by God the Father and he now stands in eternity. And what does Jesus say in Revelation? Jesus says this, John got just a glimpse of Jesus and Jesus said, I am the first And the last, I'm the living one. I am the beginning and the end. He said it like this. He said, I am the alpha and the omega. Alpha and omega, that's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, Jesus said, I am A to Z and everything in between. Wow, what a a statement. In other words, his name has been lifted above every other name and his name fills the alphabet from A to Z. To Z. Think about it with me this morning, y'all. He is Alpha, the first. He's the bright and morning star. He's the bread of heaven. He is Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the creator. He is David's son. He's the everlasting one. He is a friend for sinners. He's God in the flesh. He is the high priest. He is Emmanuel. I am. He is Jesus. He's Joseph's son. He is king. He is Lord. He is light. He's the lion of Judah. He is Messiah. He is master. He is the Nazarene. He is the narrow way. He's the only begotten of God. He's the omega. He's the prince of peace. He's the quieter of our soul. He quenches our thirst. He's our redeemer. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the root of Jesse. He's the shepherd. He's the savior. He's the son of man. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's truth. He's the unblemished lamb of God. He's the victor. He's the word made flesh. He is the way. He is the expected one. He is yesterday, today, and forever. And he is Zion's king. He is the first and the last from A to Z. That's who Jesus is. And his name, his name is written across the canvas of eternity and his name is like no other name. That's why we're so enamored with him. That's why we talk about him. We sing about him, don't we? Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. There's just something about that name. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves me. Jesus, the lover of my soul. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Fairest Lord Jesus. Jesus, Messiah. Jesus, the name above all names. Jesus saves. Jesus paid it all. All hail King Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. He is the name above all names. And so guess what God did? Notice his last thing. 
Guess what God did? If you look at verse 10, he has crowned him king of kings and lord of lords. That's what God has done. God's response to Jesus. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 12, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the exalted Christ. Look at what this text says. God has given him this name in verse 10. At that name, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, John the apostle he caught just a glimpse of the exalted Jesus. When the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of God, John saw this and he wrote it down for us. Let me read it to you in Revelation 5. John said, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they'll reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Come on, y'all. Are y'all with me? And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, amen. Wow. You know, uh, years ago I was seated in a chapel service at Southwestern Seminary and Dr. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge was preaching about Jesus and he finally stopped and he said, I wish I could just tell you about him. That's how I feel this morning. I wish I could tell you about him. But I want you to know this, you get to the end of this text, don't miss this. Look at what it says in Philippians 2 verse 11, to the glory of God. Jesus, his life, everything he did was to the glory of God. Well, how do you glorify God? I'll ask you that this morning. Do you glorify God in your haughtiness? In your pride, is that how you glorify God? When you always have to get your own way? When you make yourself the center of all things? When you have to always be right? When you demonstrate just how judgmental you can be? When you're always the instructor and never the student? When you put yourself and your needs and your thoughts and your desires over other people, is that how we glorify God? You see, that's our way. And if we live our way, guess who gets the glory? We do. That's not the Jesus way. Here at this church, what do we say? We're gonna glorify God by following what? The Jesus way, not our way. We know how to follow our way, but you've gotta follow the Jesus way. If you wanna glorify God, then you and I, we have to be humble. We've gotta be willing to surrender. 
We've got to be willing to, to not do things out of selfish ambition. We've got to see other people's needs as greater than ours. We've actually got to have the same mind in us that Jesus had in him. In other words, you and I, as the people of God, have been given this assignment to give God glory. And so may you and I find our way on the Jesus way and may the end of our life say this, to the glory of God. May it be so. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we, we bow in your presence with joyful hearts. We're grateful for what you've done for us. And certainly, Lord, today we're grateful for Jesus. My goodness, we think about what has been accomplished through Christ Jesus. And we want to thank you for what he has done for us and what you've done as well to exalt him and to give him the name above every name. And so, Lord, my prayer today is that you'll find us to be faithful followers of the Jesus way. And may we send that message throughout our schools, our families, our neighborhoods, our community, that we want to give you glory. And that we know the path that leads to our own glory does not do that at all. But instead, it brings glory to us. And so, Lord, rescue us from ourselves today, we pray. And may you find us faithful. And may you find the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus in us. We pray that in his name. Amen.